Today on Living Truth Radio, Pastor Michael Lance begins a three-part series in Genesis chapter 50 entitled The Death of Israel and God's Providence. Part one starts with a time of mourning. Jacob has passed away and Joseph carries out his father's final wishes. Two places that you want to be tonight, Genesis 50 and Romans 8. Okay, so go ahead and find those two spots. Genesis 50 and Romans 8. So at the end of Genesis uh, 49, we saw, excuse me, Jacob is on his deathbed. And Jacob has been giving prophecy. He's been blessing and charging his sons. And uh, when Jacob 49, 33 finished charging his sons, and that specifically has to do with his burial. He drew his feet into the bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. I had mentioned last Wednesday to be gathered to one's people is not necessarily the grave site that you are buried in, but the moment you breathe your last, you're gathered to your people. And that's a beautiful picture that shows up over and over in the Bible. And we talked about to be gathered to one's people is to be at home. Our people is where we feel home, uh, you know, They say there's no place like home. You go on vacation and you kind of long for a vacation and you you really want to go and see other places and then you need a vacation from your vacation. Anybody? And then you get home and you realize, man, I'm, I'm a blessed person to have a home and have these creature comforts that we do. And so to be gathered to one's people is really to be at home. To be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. I go and prepare a place for you. So we talked about that. And the response of Joseph is a beautiful response to his father's death. It's something that we've seen in a man of such strong faith, but he was more than willing to emote, to show his emotions. And Joseph, chapter 50, verse one, fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. So the moment that Jacob, uh, Joseph's dad, had died. And remember, Joseph had a lot of time away from his dad, but then God gave him back 17 years where Jacob got to be reunited with the son that he thought was dead. He got to spend that 17 years with him. I don't know how much time they had direct interaction, but they got to make up some of the time. And when Jacob uh, ended up dying here, Joseph's response, Joseph is the focus of the story, He fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. What we're going to encounter here is a uh, memorial service or a funeral that will take place that will encompass about 70 days of mourning. I just want you to think about that for a second. Can you imagine if uh, you were an employer and your employee came to you and said, I need some time for, you know, what do they call it, grief time, you get get time off of work, and they said, I need 70 days off. Now, in our culture, we would think that that person is crazy. We we would think that's a ridiculous request. How, How could you ask for over two months of leave time? But in this culture, they took mourning very seriously and in fact, uh, we find in, the, in some other scriptures a little bit later that they would mourn uh, for a period of, I think it's 30 days, over Moses and over Aaron. So they took their mourning seriously. And Joseph, notice he falls on his father's face and he weeps over him and he kisses him. A time, time and time again, we see 
Joseph falling onto people, uh, real emotion. There's, there's a real uh, desire to connect and touch. Um, it's amazing to me how in the Christian church I have learned how to hug. Now, I came from a, you could say I came from a huggy family because Italians tend to hug and kiss. And uh, I got a lot of wet kisses and a lot of grabs to the cheek from ants. Oh, look at that boy. Oh, look at him. <laughs> Some of you may have relatives like that. But uh, the affection, I think, and, and the willingness to touch is a beautiful thing in Joseph. In Genesis 46, 29, it says, Joseph prepared his chariot, went up to Goshen when he was reunited with his father, Israel. As soon as he appeared before him, he fell on his neck and wept on his neck for a long time. Joseph was not afraid to show emotion and show love. And uh, I think, you know, for us, there's some lessons here from Jewish culture. They're a very uh, embracing, uh, hugging culture. They're not afraid to kiss and hug, and that's okay. I think that's a good thing, and I think it's a healthy thing done uh, uh, obviously appropriately. In Genesis 46, 1, if you want to go back there for a second, there was a prophecy given, and this is just another reminder of the beautiful promises of God. Look at 46, verse 1. It says, Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba. This is when he's heading now. He's gotten word that Joseph is, is alive. He's going to head to Egypt. He offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac, 46, 2. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Remember, Jacob is also named Israel. He's renamed Israel. And he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again. And notice the promise. And Joseph will close your eyes. In Genesis 50, verse 1, we have the fulfillment of that promise. God reassured Jacob that it was okay for him to go to Egypt, and he told him, look, when you die, Joseph is going to close your eyes. He's going to be there at your deathbed, and literally that is what came to pass. And when Jacob finally died, it was a, it was a very moving moment for the family. He had had a chance to have a deathbed experience, though. Remember, he had a had a chance to prophesy into his son's lives, and that was a blessed thing. And Joseph, uh, chapter 50, verse 2, commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed his father or, or embalmed Israel. Genesis 50, verse 2. Let me just park here for a second. So in, in Egypt, they had an embalming, embalming process where they, that they would go through and this would, be, this would involve their priests, and I, I would imagine perhaps their physicians as well. But notice that our author Moses tells us twice that it's the physicians that did this and not the religious priests. One writer says, in the Egyptian religion, under the influence of the cult of Osiris, required that the body be preserved so that the deceased could enjoy the afterlife. So every dead body in Egypt was treated with care. But how much attention a body received was determined by how much money the family had. The poor were simply washed and dried in the sun. Some were packed with salt. Those with little or little, a little more means were injected with juniper oil to dissolve and ease the removal of organs and the scent of the body before, to scent the body before salting. 
but neither of these options included a mummy wrap. However, the rich got a total redo uh, as well as a body wrap. All organs were extracted, the body was soaked in nitre, and then bound in linen and laid uh, for an eternal good time, as the author put it. Ah, the life of the rich and pious. And so if you've seen some mummified remains of pharaohs and the like, if you've done some research in this area, you can see the preservation of the body was very major in the life of Egypt. But their ideas about the afterlife were quite bizarre. They had some weird ideas and they had, as much as they were an advanced culture, you could say with their building projects and their uh, mathematics and all the the industry that we could see that was happening in Egypt, even can see it in the pyramids. They were very like a, a weird culture, religiously speaking. They, they would uh, honor insects and frogs and rivers and things like that. They had a very weird polytheistic culture. And imagine if you're Joseph. Joseph is gonna die at 110. He was taken into slavery at 17. He spent 93 years of his life in a culture debauched in polytheism, the worship of insects and bugs and rivers and you name it, and often their uh, religious ceremonies involved occult sex and all this kind of stuff. And if you were a big wig in the culture, you had everything pretty much at your fingertips, anything that you wanted. And from what we can tell from Joseph's life, he resisted all of that. He didn't fall prey to the the temptations. In fact, we see it way back in Potiphar's house when even Potiphar's wife is trying to get him to sleep, you know, get him to sleep with her, and he says no. He was a man of honor, but he was in a very difficult culture. Uh, we've talked about on several occasions that Egypt in the Bible is a type, a picture of the world. And most of us who go out into the world, and I'm not working a secular job anymore, but I, I feel your pain, and I did not go out of college into the ministry. I spent a good amount of time in the secular work environment. And I can feel your pain. And I know how sometimes it feels like Egypt out there. I know how sometimes you, you go from the church to the world, as it were, and you feel like, man, it's very difficult sometimes to fight the temptations and the worldly ways that are out there. But Joseph is a man who was able to accomplish that. And I'll tell you something I learned in the secular workforce, and I'm not saying I always did it correctly. But when I tried to live out my Christian values in the secular work environment, I noticed that most people felt a sense of honor for that. They, they saw it as something honorable and not something to make fun of. Now, I know sometimes you catch heat for your views maybe among secular family and friends. And when I say secular, I'm talking about people who do not embrace the Christian faith. But you know what? I think sometimes they're kind of interested about what we believe and why we believe it. And we often earn the right to be heard by letting our walk and talk align. Amen? Amen. So if we say that we're something, be assured people are gonna watch you at work. They're gonna see if you actually live your Christian values, and often they're gonna ask you in a moment of crisis about this God that you believe in, and you'll earn the right to be heard. Let me ask you, are you earning the right to be heard? I hope so. You're not gonna do it perfectly. We're gonna obviously talk to people about grace, but we wanna earn the right to be heard. It's Mike Massaro, and you're listening to Living Truth Radio with Pastor Michael Lance, and we'll get back to the teaching in about 30 seconds. But I want to tell you about a special offer that we have available. It's Pastor Michael's book, Suit Up, 
putting on the full armor of God. It's about spiritual warfare, how to overcome temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. The special offer is, if you go to livingtruthradio.org, that's livingtruthradio.org, and click on the Donate button, for any donation, we'll send you a copy of that book. Just make sure you tell us in the contact form that you'd like the book. Now, back to Pastor Michael. And when the days of mourning for him were past, verse 4, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I've found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh, saying, Now, I don't know if Pharaoh was out of town. I don't know if he was on some sort of venture or he was, you know, he was involved in other stuff. I mean, Joseph is the viceroy of Egypt. In some ways, he was more powerful than the Pharaoh himself. Why does he have to send message? I'm not quite sure, but somehow he has to get word to the Pharaoh. It may just be that he wanted to stay in Goshen with the family, and so he sent word by messenger. And so now um, he's, he's asking the Pharaoh these following things. My father made me swear, verse five, saying, behold, I'm about to die. In my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan, there you shall bury me. Now, therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, then I will return. This is the message from Joseph to Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, verse seven, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Notice the word all, and you have so the servants of the Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So this is a huge entourage of all the bigwigs in the land of Egypt are going to accompany Joseph to this burial site. Notice verse eight. All the household of Joseph, the 75 plus people that made the trek there with Jacob, plus those who have been born, etc. All the household of, Je- of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household, they left only their little ones, their little children and their flocks and their herds in the land of Goshen, and they went. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen. This is the military from Egypt, and it was a very great company. So this is kind of, you know, the, the huge group of people, it's a huge company of people that are doing what I would consider a funeral procession here, and they're gonna travel quite a distance. And what's interesting is that they are going to retrace, from what I can tell here, the path of the Exodus. Hundreds of years later, Israel will leave Egypt again, but this time, when they leave hundreds of years later under the leadership of Moses, the chariots and horsemen won't be leading a procession for the the death of Israel. The chariots and horsemen will be chasing them into the Red Sea, and God will cause the waters of the Red Sea to cover them. He will deal with horse and rider. If you want to look at that story, it's found in Exodus chapter 14. But here he has a huge company, you know, given by the Pharaoh and all the people are heading out. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, verse 10, which is beyond the Jordan, they're on the east side of the Jordan. They lamented there with a great, with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days of mourning for his father. So here's what's happening. Basically, they've come from the land of Egypt. Remember, Egypt is just south of Israel. Canaan, the land of Canaan, becomes the land of Israel. And so Egypt and Israel border each other. So they moved into the border of the, the promised land or the land of Canaan, and they, they stopped at a threshing floor, the area of Atad, 
And there Joseph went into a mourning for seven days. So there's already been a lot of mourning going on and now there's, they set up camp for seven days of mourning and the people of the area, you could say the Canaanites began to witness what was going on. They looked and saw this mourning that went on for his father. Jacob's family, the Egyptian military, the elders, the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, verse 11, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad and they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. The Egyptians apparently were all mourning as well. Therefore, it was named Abel Mitzrayim, which is beyond the Jordan. Now, you can look up this phrase, and I found a couple of things on it. Some, uh, some um, lexicons say it means Abel Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim means the meadow of Egypt. Uh, but I saw another author that said it probably means the mourning of Egypt as in crying or wailing, and I think that's probably a more accurate way to look at it. And here the people looked and they saw this grievous mourning. Now you might ask, well, why is there so much mourning going on over the death of Jacob? Because imagine who Jacob is now to the Egyptians. He's the father of the man who saved Egypt. And for that matter, he's the father of the man that saved the world. Joseph, we've been saying, is in many ways a type of Christ, and by the dreams that God had given him, and by the direction that he had given the Pharaoh, and by his leadership in those seven years of plenty and seven years of famine, Joseph really, in many ways, saved the world. And the world was saved ultimately so that the Israelite family could be saved so that the Messiah could come, but God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He didn't just love Israel, he loved the world. He loved you and he loved me. And Joseph is a type of Jesus. And when the father Jacob dies here, the, the Egyptians are mourning. Now you could ask the question, was it real mourning or were they putting on a show? I don't know for sure. But I do know this, the mourning for the Israelites was real. And when they mourned, they would weep loudly. They would lament. They would tear their clothing. They would often put ashes on their head and they would sit in, with sackcloth and ashes. It was a very serious time. They took this time, uh, you know, really to heart, and it's okay for us to mourn when we lose somebody. You know, sometimes as Christians, I think we feel like we have to move on so quickly, and you know, those who are uh, directors of mortuaries are saying that, you know, people are moving in and out so quickly that sometimes they don't even have a chance to process and mourn, and it's okay to mourn. Now, we don't mourn, we don't grieve like those who have no hope. Our hope is in the resurrection. Our hope is in the truth of heaven. But I want you to see that the Jews were not afraid to mourn the loss. And the process of mourning is needed. It's something that you have to go through. And so it doesn't, it's not just a matter of a day and you're supposed to get over it. And sometimes well-meaning people will say to you with not very good timing, you know, you need to move on or whatever. Look, there's going to be a time to mourn. There's a time to dance. There's a time to weep. There's a time to enjoy life. There's, there comes a time when you die. There's a time to build and a time to dare, tear down. There's a time for everything under the sun, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, there's an appropriate time for everything, and we need to learn that there's an appropriate time to mourn. Joseph was not afraid to mourn. Now, we're going to watch that there's going to be a time to move on as well. But as I said, it looks like this total time encapsulated at least 70 days of mourning. And so that's a couple of months. And it doesn't mean just because you've mourned that 
it's over, right? You, could just, you just forget about it. No, you're not gonna forget about it. But you're gonna need to live again. And it's not always just mourning the death of somebody. Sometimes it's mourning a broken relationship. Sometimes it's mourning a job loss. Sometimes you just have to allow yourself some space and some grace. It's okay. God understands. Sometimes we're quick as people. We mean well. We throw out a Bible verse or we do this or that, and we mean well. But you know what? We're not in that person's sandals. And so we give as much grace as we can and just say, you know what? I'm praying for you. And sometimes just a quiet presence is the best thing that we can do. And so this place was named by the people of the land, probably the morning of Egypt. And so uh, the procession parked there for a while. And thus his sons, verse 12, did for him as he had charged them. He did not want to be buried in Egypt. And his sons carried him to the land of Canaan. So they would have now had to cross the Jordan River by the way, um, if you get a chance to go to Israel, the Jordan River is not terribly impressive. It almost looks like a little stream at some places, but, but when it's at flood stage, it's, it can be very difficult to cross. And so I'm not sure the route that they took for, uh, for certain, but they carried him, his remains across to the land of Canaan. They entered into the promised land, which is a great picture of faith. And they buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. And so here's the cave where the family members were buried. By faith, Abraham purchased the cave. He was buried here. Sarah was buried in the cave. Isaac was buried here. Rebekah was buried here. Jacob's wife Leah was buried here. And now Jacob would join their remains in this place. Uh, they have discovered over the years, uh, as they do excavation projects and even building projects in Israel, many burial sites that they find, and they're often caves or family tombs where they put ossuaries. And an ossuary is just a little bone box, and what the Jews do is they take great care to care for the bones. And so they will move the bones into an ossuary. A bone box is just about yay big. And they'll often find multiple ossuaries in a site where they will uh, you know, have uh, family members all in this one place. And after he buried his father, verse 14, chapter 50, Joseph returned to Egypt. Notice the word after. There's always an after. I've walked many families through uh, the mourning process and uh, you know, going through trying to make arrangements and you know, there's, there's all these, this stuff that comes out of family. And then they hold a service and they, they have a chance to reflect and honor that person and remember and share stories and, and cry and laugh a little bit. And then there's an after. And the after is the reality of trying to move on and now live life without that person. And that is not an easy process, but there's always an after. And it seems like a, there's a lot of attention that we pay at the kind of the beginning, but the after is often where the best ministry needs to occur. And we're not always good at that, right? But we need to pay attention to people who have gone through something and give them the care that they need even after. Make sure that they know we're praying for them, etc. And so after he buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt and his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. There was a time to go back to Egypt and the time had come. 
When someone dies, we often experience shock, fear, and even numbness. C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book called A Grief Observed, lost his wife, and he wrote these words, the great uh, apologist for the Christian faith, once an atheist became a strong believer, he lost his wife, and he wrote this on the first page of his journal that he kept for months following her death. He wrote, there's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting. Yet I want others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. The numbness is like that of a wound healing, James Boyce adds to the words of C.S. Lewis. Welcome, listening family. This is Oscar Santa Cruz, and you're listening to Living Truth Radio, and we are now in chapter 50. Is there anything else you would like to cover that hasn't been said yet, or encourage our listeners to what they may want to hear? Yeah, Oscar, one thing I've been suggesting uh, as we've gone through the book, especially through the Joseph story, is that Genesis 50, verse 20, should be considered as the theme verse. What you intended for evil, God intended for good, to bring about the present result to save many people alive. And we, we've talked about, Oscar, how Genesis 50, verse 20 is the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. And, you know, I know that I spent some time in the message uh, developing this idea of that God works all things together for good. And you were asking some questions, you know, about that, kind of trying to dig out the, the particulars of it, if you will, when we wrestle with something theologically, right? Go ahead. My question was, what are all things? What does that mean? And what does that consist of? Well, you know, uh, there are some qualifiers to those who love God. So it, it is a person who's in love with God and those who are called according to his purpose. So that's the end of Romans 8.28. So we, we've got to qualify that, you know, it is, it is written to a specific individual who is saved in a love relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and called according to God's purpose. So we put that on the table. That's really for every Christian. But then we ask the question about all things. So when Paul writes Romans 8, think about the bigger context. Paul's been talking about persecution. He's talking about, you know, the struggle that we go through. He's talking about how even the creation is groaning. And then, you know, he's encouraging the Roman church who's going through their own persecution and struggle and basically says, you know, hey, if God is for us, who can be against us? And he goes into this whole incredible section. Uh, that's actually starting in verse 31. But just before that, we have the Romans 8, 28. So, so what, what's the deal with that? Is it everything in our life that God can exploit for his good purposes? Um, is it the all things just of the chapter, <laughs> you know, that, that Paul is talking about? I think all things is a sweeping term, a sweeping phrase. And I think it doesn't mean that God will exploit everything for his good purposes and for his glory. How that all works, Oscar, I, I will not tell you that I know or understand. But the Joseph story is an example of it. Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org.